Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. That was the motto of the fictional karate dojo Cobra Kai from the Karate Kid movies. They were the typical bullies of the time. I mean, what was with all the one-dimensional testosterone-frenzied bullies in the 80s? Anyway, Cobra Kai taught that the world was brutal, and if you were going to survive out there, you had to be even more brutal. You had to strike first, strike hard, and show no mercy. It's a motto that befits the ancient Mesopotamians. You see, 5,000 years ago, civilizations thrived in the Fertile Crescent for millennia, that area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And because of the bounty those luscious plains promised, it was a hotbed of invasions, takeovers, slavery, and conquests. Violence beget violence. It's where an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth comes from, and now think about how literal they meant that. Hashtag Hammurabi. Usurpers were tortured or dismembered or even flayed alive. In fact, one king would wrap a pillar in human flesh outside each city he sacked as a warning. I dare say Sensei John Kreese would approve. If the people viewed humanity as brutal, fickle, and self-serving, then the gods would be no different. Welcome to the Ancient Origins of the Devil, Part 2, Mesopotamia and Canaan. This is the devil you don't know. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Devil That You Don't Know. This is the podcast that explores the historical and cultural relevance of the figure known as the devil. I am Don Early. I am Emily. Hey everybody, it's Jeremy. And this is part two of a series that we're doing right now on the ancient origins of the devil. Yay! Part one was Ancient Egypt. That is the previous episode, so go check that out if you haven't. Um, they do kind of stack in progression, so I would recommend go checking that out. It, only in that we will refer to the previous episode probably more than a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Not that you require information from the previous episode to get this one, though. Right. Yeah. yeah. Got it right there the first go. time. Yeah. So today, our topic is Mesopotamia and Canaan which are regions in the Middle East area. Yes. Thank you. Those, <laughs> those regions. Check. Mm-hmm. I yeah. like the word Mesopotamia. The Fertile Crescent. It's lovely, isn't it? It rolls off the tongue. Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. It's the Greek. The region between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Mm-hmm. Meso and pot. I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, Mm -hmm. the peoples were the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, and the Babylonians, and the Canaanites. Um, So that's the general region of people. And we're talking, like, this is the first civilization. It's the birthplace of civilization. Yeah. That That whole fertile area between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River with the Persian Gulf, it, it just mm-hmm. kind of slides from north, you know, southeast as it goes 
that direction. <laughs> we keep seeing your hand. I know. Yeah. Doing, like, the like, slash right. It's I'm right there. To, it's just where the slash is. I was seeing my hand and I'm just like, is this mirrored? How am I? Okay. Anyway, I, we're fine. <laughs> the yes. listeners at home are totally following what you're saying. Oh, God. I talk with my hands so much. Sorry uh, for people who are watching this. I'm sorry, all you Patreon supporters. <laughs> It's fine. So <laughs> this region is super important. I mean, it not you just said it. It's the birthplace of civilization, at least in what we consider the Western world. There's probably other civilizations that are older and in different places. Uh, but we're focusing in on this region because this region contributed the most to our understanding of what the devil is today. And... So here we are, birthplace of civilization. I believe we have artifacts that go back to 5,000 BCE, 6,000 wow. even maybe. Yeah. Um, so so 8,000 years ago, just this is, this is where some of my knowledge comes in. So mm. around 8,000 years ago, the Persian Gulf, actually the coast of it was a lot further north than, than what it is today. Um, oh, really? As, yes. Yeah, so, so the city-state of Ur... Before it was a city-state of Ur, it was this ancient civilization. Um, and so we're talking about like 6,000 BC or so. Um, that was actually a coastal city. It was where cool. the Euphrates meets uh, the Persian Gulf. It was that far north from where it was. I think that's around eight feet higher than uh, what it is today. Uh, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers kind of filled that in, up with all of the silt and stuff. Um, so the land kind of pushed it <laughs> further south. But yeah, Ur was uh, a coastal city. Wow. So, um, and that leaves questions of whether ancient civilizations are actually buried underneath the Persian Gulf and all of that silt and stuff. From, oh, fair enough. From the mouths of those rivers. So when we say the birthplace of civilization, I mean, this this is ancient, ancient stuff we're talking about here. Yeah. So examining the history and the mythology of this region will lay some foundations for where some of the familiar stories evolved, uh, eventually leading to the Western notion of the devil. In today's episode, we're going to lay out some context of the region and its peoples. We'll talk about a few of the civilizations and then get right down into some juicy myths, which uh, Jeremy and Emily will help us out with. Yeah. Uh, and uh, once again, none of these religions so far have a single principle of evil. And what I mean by that is there's not one specific god or divine being or or power that is specifically devoted to evil or or their domain is evil its opposite is true as well not one specific god is considered 100 percent purely fully good the embodiment right? of good yeah. i don't even know if that was really a priority because chaos and order were a little bit more relevant, you know, with the environments and everything. And as we'll see, how the civilizations change violently. Right. Um, I was just going to say the, the idea of, of good, right? Talking about that order, like that seems to be a lot more of, 
of the the ancient mindset is really the when you are good you are obeying a law which means you are staying docile or when you are chaotic you are defying the law and uh and, and breaking those kind of rules it just we've seen a lot of experience of that with the religious that we talked about earlier yeah yeah exactly the region specifically i believe you laid it out great uh it's the western asia with uh you know between the tigris and the euphrates river system uh, it's from the greek meso meaning middle and patamos which is river so middle of the rivers uh present day iraq parts of iran turkey syria and kuwait civilizations once again we're talking about sumerians which go back way far uh, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, and the Babylonians. And we're not really going to get into specific myths of those individual cultures because they overlap so much that we can kind of meld them together into one because there was no Bible for them. There was no unifying text or sure. thing. I mean, they had the cuneiform tablets and the other thing, you know, the other things that they wrote on, I think like the little um, seals and stuff like the looks like a brick that has writing all the way around think of indiana jones and he puts the thing on the top of the pedestal it's kind of those kinds of things okay <laughs> now it's way cooler that's what i think of anyway. <laughs> everything um, lights up yeah the sumerians they are they kind of stand right behind babylonia and assyria and those two influenced heavily the hebrews and the canaanites and Canaan influenced both Israel and the Minoan civilization of Crete, which, of course, preceded the Mycenaean and the Hellenic cultures. And so it's just Of this... course. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you're both I, nodding. I'm like, okay. I, I am, yes, I am taking for granted uh, my classics background. So, sorry. Now, the Mesopotamian religious thought differs immensely from the Egyptian culture, mm. um, and specifically in the characteristic of fearfulness. Okay, so if you recall, Egypt had this understanding that the cosmos at its natural resting state was in a place of order and divine rightness. Everything had a sort of system and balance to it. Right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, so, and, and the they, chaos was the the antithesis of what you were shooting for. Order was the mm -hmm. focus, right? We we talked about the annual floods that you could yep. count on and using the Nile to replenish everything. So if there was chaos, then that was bad. That's right. Yeah, it was a disruption of that divine cosmic order. And they called that Ma'at. So Ma'at is that divine order, the cosmic order. Well, instead of Ma'at... In the Mesopotamian area, uh, the cosmos was always shattering, often without warning, and order constantly had to be rebuilt and restored. So mm. it's Ooh. like the opposite. Total like opposite, yeah. The, the universe is exploding in chaos and nothing is, you know, and you always have to come back and try and, and bring order back to where it is supposed to be and there's a really good reason for this the region attracted frequent migrations mixing of peoples which looks like invasions and conquests not just you know a nice little melting pot uh, sure these 
was like, I want that. So you have it, get out of my way. Mm -hmm. Now you are my slave. Imagine living in there and you're farming and you're doing your thing. And then these foreigner outside people come in, take over your land, take over everything. Uh, say now that, you know, now we own you and we're going to ship you out. Like that's, that could happen at any moment. So it is this constant prompting continual fear of war, its threat of annihilation and resettlement and slavery. Like, <laughs> that's intense. Yeah. And the Mesopotamians, particularly the Assyrians, the Assyrians got real good at this. They became fierce and brutal under this fierce and brutal circumstances. And, and were the Assyrians one of the groups that moved in mm -hmm. or were they yeah. there first? Okay. Yeah. They took over uh, from the, mm. the Sumerians and they, the Assyrians were really sort of the later version of, of the Sumerians. Um, okay. Paul II was a king in 883 to 859 BCE and uh, Assyrian and he burned and pillaged any city that resisted and many that didn't resist. <laughs> he would have their hands and feet cut off and the dead and dying bodies piled up in a festering heat to rot in the sun. Oh my God. You know, wow, as a dude. deterrent to not fucking resist. So the Aramenian city of Sarah did not resist when Ash showed up at their gates demanding that they be opened. Yep. They freely opened their gates, and they were rewarded with Ashurdazepal's leniency. The city was burned to the ground. The people, oh were, carried, the people were carried off into slavery. He ordered the legs of the officers of the city to be cut off, and the governor was carried off to Nineveh, where he was publicly flayed alive. Jeez, oh, that's, that's his mercy? <laughs> real merciful. God. Yeah. Nature and society were not part of the divine cosmos. The world was fundamentally alienated from, from the divine plan. You know, the gods might help. They sure. may just abandon you um, or completely ignore a nation or a city or the individual entirely. In an early Sumerian poem, a man complains that he has worshipped the gods properly, and yet his enemies triumph over him. A Babylonian version of the poem details a conversation between the sufferer and his friend, where the sufferer inquires why those who worship the gods, they suffer, and those who ignore the gods prosper. It's starting to sound a little familiar? Yeah, it does. That so, sounds like a solid Job yeah. uh, I was gonna say. <laughs> parallel right there. Yeah. So um, obviously some big influence here. And now it's time to kind of bring that into the biblical context. In the previous episode, we talked about sort of that, what was the context behind maybe that story of the Jewish exodus from Egypt and Moses and all that? Well, we're past all that at this point. And in, um, let's see here, 733 BCE is when the first diaspora happens. And diaspora is a fancy word that means dispersal. 
where essentially the uh, Assyrian Empire invades the Israelites and their home, the, the kingdom of Israel, and takes them over and disperses them to all of Mesopotamia. They kick them out of their own city. It's called the exilic period or because they were in exile, um, mm-hmm. or they also call it the, the di- diaspora. And so the first one was with the Assyrian king Tiglash Pileser the third. We're going to butcher these names. Yeah. (laughs) But the one that most people are familiar with is the one that occurred in 597 BCE and again in 586 BCE, where the Israelites were exiled under Babylonian captivity, famously under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar II. Uh, So I say famously because that's the one that's sort of uh, mentioned in the Bible a a bit. So that experience, as you can imagine, they're just in the kingdom of Israel and suddenly invaders come in, they get uprooted and sold into slavery and scattered across the region. They're still like the Jewish, the, the Hebrew scriptures are not totally written at this point and they're still being written. And this, as you can imagine, greatly influenced that. And so there is this exilic period, and then there is what's referred to as the post-exilic period when they were able to come back together. Um, some of them just kind of stayed out there and, and coalesced into groups across the region, but those who would come back. So what I'm talking about during this time, during the diaspora, uh, we're talking about parts of Jeremiah, Second Kings, Second Chronicles, mm-hmm. Ezra, Daniel, and Lamentations, just to name a few. There's a few more. So matches yeah. up in that time period then. Okay. Yeah. If you, uh, you know, you can go back and read uh, sections of those and start of s- sort of see the influence that the Assyrians and the Babylonians had on them because they're, they're out there following Yahweh, but they are being subjected to and probably forced to follow these other gods yeah, um, and uh, the old gods. <laughs> these are old, old gods. <laughs> I want to thank Emily for pointing out the YouTube channel Useful Charts. <laughs> it is, <laughs> this is uh, so nerdy. I'm so- oh, man. A YouTube channel devoted to charts. Yep, mm-hmm. that is my cup of tea, folks. <laughs> <laughs> It's real oh, it's solid. It's embarrassing, but it's true. No, I it's I I love that channel. I think it's fantastic. I've learned a lot. They have fun silly things. It's not just like they they don't take <sighs> themselves too seriously, but they right. definitely present the information that it, and it's entertaining to listen to and what yeah. makes it fun as a video is that their main video is this chart that they've made that is useful. It yeah. is a useful chart. I, I mean, like named. I said, they, they do some silly stuff like who would be king of Britain today if, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't follow the rule of firstborn male, whatever. Right, wow. And they go through the family tree and they, they name it. I mean, at some but point have, you got... But they have some actual fantastic historical yeah. uh, things that they go through. And, I, and I've learned a lot from that and i i like it and i i love how linearly the the stuff is given to you the information is given uh mm-hmm. 
it's easy to follow along and they yeah. have they have these family trees and and charts and timelines for nearly yeah. anything you can think of so in the previous episode i linked the one for ancient egypt and it has the the timeline of the different dynasties and the different pharaohs and kings and then also it has the timeline that with all of the pyramids and when those were built and who they were for and then it also has their mythology and who all the gods were and a little, little bit of the family tree so i've i've linked that really really cool and they do have one for the mesopotamia gods so mm. i'm linking that oh. in Right, uh, and, and talking about Gilgamesh. Uh, yep. Yeah, yep. okay. I've so seen we're not going to get into Gil Gilgamesh. I haven't in finished watching it yet, but yeah. Yeah. That's we're not going to get into Gilgamesh because he doesn't really apply to the devil, but sure. the other myths that are mentioned in there. What's really cool is that, so we're going to present some myths of one particular way to tell it. Um, but as we've talked about before, these myths, there's no consistency whatsoever. And certain gods take the place of other gods in particular stories. So there's no real right way to tell it. And you can't go okay. back to the oldest one and say that's the right one because there's other factors that don't make it right for this other region. And, and each region had its own sort of version for its like patron saints and patron gods uh, of their cities and stuff. So... Anyway, go check that out. 24 minutes long. Um, link is in the link tree. Yeah, so let's get into the Enuma Elish. This is the Babylonian creation epic. And uh, Jeremy, how are you feeling? I feel like if, if you said the word epic, then I should definitely be the one to read it. All right. That's... <laughs> I'm just happy it's not me because there, there's words in that. So I... <laughs> there's a lot of words. <laughs> Uh, a lot of names. A lot of so, names. Yes, do it. It's I, I believe I love, in you. I love the way it's written. I'm just going to put that right out there, Donna. There's there's some there's some direct verbiage. I got to make sure I don't uh, screw up because <laughs> reading it the way it's written is is a chef's kiss. That's a, that's the way it's done. <laughs> All right. Known as the Seven Tablets of Creation, the story is important because it would later inspire Hebrew scribes who created the text now known as Genesis. So we are talking beginnings of beginnings here. It tells of the creation of the universe out of watery chaos and primeval darkness. It resembles the battles between elder gods and younger gods found in so many other religions, like the victory of cosmos over chaos. In the beginning, there was only undifferentiated waters swirling in chaos. Out of this chaos, the waters divided. The sweet, fresh water became the god Apsu. The bitter, salty water became the goddess Tiamat. Once they were separated and distinct, their union gave birth to the younger gods. These younger gods were a loud, rowdy bunch of asshole kids. They kept Apsu from sleeping at night and distracted him from doing his work during the day. So he gets super pissed off and finally can't stand it anymore and plots to murder all his kids. <laughs> that is a real thing, by the way. All parents out there, you you feel exactly what I'm talking about. Some days, 
Murder doesn't oh, seem that bad. Some days. <laughs> it's a real thing. Their mother, as mom is, Tiamat, who is by now also grumpy as shit due to all the noise and jostling around these younger gods, isn't quite comfortable with the idea of having her children murdered outright. So one of two things happen, depending on the version of the myth you're reading. One, she warns her son Enki that his father plans on killing all of the younger gods. That's one version. Number two, the young gods find out about Apsu's plans and choose Enki to kill Apsu for them. Either way, Enki's the picked, but it depends on, on which way you're looking at it. So Enki kills Apsu and builds a nice house on his corpse. It's a damn god. It's a big place. So, like you do, Enki invites all of his siblings into his peaceful house, and he engenders a son, Markduk, the god of Babylon. Can you sorry, fill me sorry. in? Marduk. Marduk. I, I, there, so, that so was not, a typo. No, no Markduk? No Markduk. It's Marduk. Can I call him Markduk? No. All right. Well, he's the proper name. What do you mean by engenders a son real quick? Is he becoming him? Is he is no. he well, that body? Kind of. This is, again, where these kind of things... Uh, take place, you know, so they're in an earlier version or a different version. It's not Enki that slays Apsu. Yeah. Actually, it is Enki. It's not Apsu that he slays. It's Anu. And oh. Apsu and Tiamat had two kids, which I can't remember their names, and they're basically kind of forgotten anyway. But those two kids had another set of two kids, Anu and Ki. Anu is the sky and Ki is the earth. And the idea is that, um, so Ki is mother earth. And it's said that when it rains, that is the seed of Anu sprinkling across Ki. And so Ki gives birth to everything that there is. So that's not gross. Um, <laughs> And is that why so you get that out? That's not the way I'm in there. Like, I just well, didn't want to talk about ranges. <laughs> well, we're, yeah, we'll go. We're not going to go there today. Okay. Um, there's some great myths out there, guys. Oh, dirty <laughs> as hell. Real dirty, these folks. Anyway, so in in one version, it's Anu, it's not Apsu, it's okay. not, it's key, it's not Tiamat. And so there's a, this other character, Enlil, which is Enki's. Uh, brother. And so it's, it gets a little confusing. So I think your insight is probably right in that when he says he engenders his son, he either has a son, and I think there is mythology around who his son's mother is. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in that video that I mentioned earlier with the cool chart. Okay. Uh, but, but I think also in different versions, his son Marduk takes on the role of Enki and fulfills the rest of the, the myth. So, Okay. All right. Well, thank you. So, so that, that helps a lot, kind of. It, you know, it does. It helps. It just just figuring out where the differentiation is because I'm going to keep going down. So, yeah. so we're working our way down. So we were at Apsu and Tiamat. Enki straight up kills Apsu, who was made of fresh water, by the way. Yeah. Just reminding everyone so of that. So in, in the fresh water, we're talking about the fresh water, like, under the earth, the, all the aquifers the and everything, the groundwater, the sweet or drinkable water. Whereas Tiamat is the uh, rushing, uh, the sea, raging seawater yeah. that is uh, hostile. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of hostile, because now Enki killed Apsu, has a son named Marduk, now the god of Babylon. Oh, by the way, each city uh, 
has their own version of this myth, but we're, we're going to focus on Marduk because that one's easy. He's, he's Babylon's patron god, and there's a lot of information about that. Majority of tablets that were found are... Anyway, you got it. Yeah. So, Ops is dead, right? So now Tiamat is fucking enraged that her kids killed her husband. I don't know exactly what she expected to happen. She told them that that was going to happen, and she didn't want murder to happen, but either way, she's probably going to be mad no matter what the outcome was. So now we need to note that Tiamat also had other children that were not gods. You can think of them like the old ones, kind of like Greek titans. Uh, okay. The eldest old one is Kingu. And Kingu speaks with her and advises her to make war on the younger gods. She agrees, and in order to do it her, without doing it herself, she creates, out of the forces of chaos, 11 horrible monsters, or demons, to destroy her children. Under Kingu's command, so this is his army. Here's these names, Emily, you ready? I'm ready. The first one is Basmu, or Bashmu, uh, which is a venomous snake. Then there's Ushumgalu, great dragon. Mushmahu, exalted serpent. Mushusu, the furious snake. Lamu, the hairy one. That was Oogaloo. named after me. <laughs> Gross. Uh, Ugaloo, or Ugaloo, uh, the big weather beast, which I thought was actually named after Don. Iridimu, the mad lion. Sorry, I'm going to say that, that different. Uridimu. And then there's uh, Gertabululu, scorpion man. Umu Dabrutu, violent storms. There's Kululu, the fish man, and Kusariku, the bull man. So, There's going to be a test later, so make sure you remember those names Yeah. in order. So if I heard you right, there's a lot of snakes, a lot of serpents. Yep. And yes. then we've got some like half man, half beast, like the scorpion man and the fish man and the bull man. Yeah. And then we've got some like storms and weather and... Yeah, the weather beast and violent storms. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, you, you know what I'm not seeing here? I'm not seeing bears. I'm not seeing tigers. I'm not seeing alligators. I'm, I'm, I'm like immediately aware of like, oh, okay. So the fish man, the bull man, the scorpion man, that is creatures of the Fertile Crescent, of, mm -hmm. of the Mesopotamia area. So, so you, right, the imagination goes to what's, what's nearby, what you can see. Yeah. Because if you don't know a bear exists, how do you make it up? How do you make it up, yeah. right? All right, so back to Anki. He's a bit overwhelmed by this and doesn't feel like he's up to the task. He could handle Apsu, right? One giant elder god, but now there's an army of under gods and demons, and he's out. He doesn't want to deal with that. I can't so, blame him. <laughs> I don't I mean, want one. It's like, hey, I did Hell one. No, I got I, one. I got my your turn. I'll take care of this one on. Uh, actually, his brother Anu does step up, not to fight though. He tries diplomacy with their mother instead, you know, to try to talk her out of it, and she ain't having any of that shit. With so a that's raging Tiamat. I, I mean, he, wow. It's mom. He could give it a shot. Maybe he was the favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so Enki's son, Mer Enki's son Marduk. He's now chosen to be the leader of the gods. Mm. And Marduk, being leader of the gods now, says, you know what? Fuck diplomacy. We're going to go attack Grandma. So he attacks Tiamat with sword and flame and lightning. So the great fight is happening. Tiamat opens up her maw to swallow him. Jeez. Remember the great bit of water. So, so we're talking lots and lots of storm. Yeah. Marduk drives the storm wind through her 
to incapacitate her, and then he shoots her with an arrow, killing her and splitting her into two. From her eyes, when she dies, flows the rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Awesome. Marduk fashions her corpse into heaven and earth, so now she is the split of the two, and he finishes the creation of the Cosmoth. By the way, he does get to Kingu. Kingu gets brought forth, charged, and is killed. And out of Kingu's blood, Marduk creates humanity, whose sole purpose is to make sacrifices and serve the gods. That's why we exist. Mm. Uh, by the way, it's because Marduk creates humanity out of the blood of his enemies, this is kind of implying that this is why humanity is rebellious against the gods, because we're, we're born of, of blood and fire. Yeah. Hmm. Marduk then appoints all the other gods to their appropriate stations. And there they are. So we have now been created. Marduk saved the day. Wow. Yeah. So a uh, huge, crazy story. What? There's Epic. a lot of parallels. <laughs> there's a lot of parallels here, I feel like. Um, I mean, not character for character and not event <laughs> for event, obviously. But, but what are some things that jump out at you? Well, how about the flood? Mm. Thinking of Tiamat, the, the, the maid of the giant better raging waters, uh, opening up her maw to swallow mm -hmm. Marduk and everything, that sounds pretty flood-like to me. That sounds something that would be pretty massive and, and yeah. devastating. In and that, when I broken a, in half. I have a note there. Uh, so that was to signify, so Tiamat opening her maw is, you know, this is chaos. Uh, the devouring female attempts to destroy order by ingesting it and reabsorbing it and forcing it back into the primordial womb. And so that's the note that we're supposed to, you know, pick up on. Ah, okay. From that context, you know, it, you know, what's that that's the thing that I love about this mythology is that a it's a story with characters who are doing things, but B these characters are also concepts that reflect Right what you see out in the world and trying to explain it. Yeah, I get that. And with with Marduk, you know, fashioning humanity out of Kingu's blood, his whole idea there is to, you know, okay, so backing up a little bit, when Enki kills Absu, someone's got to run Absu's kingdom, right? Sure. So Enki is the one that goes down under the earth and, and is now like, you know, running the kingdom. Is that well, part of the idea of making a, a, a house on his corpse? Yeah. Is like kind of taken over for where he yeah. was dead? Okay. And there, another version of the story is he actually, um, you know, the, the corpse gets buried deep down into the earth because it basically he is the fresh water, if you, if you remember. Yeah. So, right. um, so he builds his house within you know underground into into this area but then marduk kills tiamat so right now someone's got to rule tiamat's kingdom chaos and oceans right and, and stuff and so and so by doing that he splits her in another myth she she you know she's a primordial god so she can't actually die and so he he sort of incapacitates her splits her into two and makes one half of her body, you know, uh, the sky and one half the earth. 
and her out of her eyes you know the the rivers flow she's still alive in this disfigured state oh, um, oh my gosh yeah <laughs> brutal <laughs> people like you said yeah there's some <laughs> some brutalness here yeah so i think that's the other thing that sort of gets me is how violent the this creation myth is you know, we yeah. in, in Genesis, we have in the beginning were the waters of the void, right? Mm -hmm. And they were unsubstantiated waters and they were in the darkness. And then God had to separate the waters, which were not quite up and down yet, but eventually then would fashion the world and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Egypt had primordial waters too. So this kind of kind of makes me just it's really interesting that the sky they look up at the sky and they think that was water yeah i, I mean there's there's a part of me that kind of gets it because the if you look at things on their surface right I, I feel the same way about dragons this way like if you look at something on its surface and you say what i see is real then what you are seeing is a bunch of ocean in the sky Mm. Right. You mm -hmm. look down, you see all the blue water here. You look up. That's a lot of blue. That's got to be water. That's this. Yeah. I can feel this. I can touch this. That's what I see. It's the same thing. Right. It, 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 the, the idea of dragons existing in mm -hmm. the background, I believe that there were absolutely dinosaur bones that were a lot closer to the surface when people dug them up. They're like, holy hell, look at the face of this thing. Yeah. That could mm -hmm. eat everything. There's got to be dragons around. Right, right. See, because my reality is what it is, that's what I perceive and that's what I create out of it. So I, I can definitely see that separation of the split because they look the same. Everything yeah. matches. Yeah, for sure. And if this one is so powerful and if I've got to be careful of my God of the ocean, I got to be careful. That means there's got to be something fearful up there mm -hmm. that I also have to sacrifice and pay homage to before yeah. that also attacks me. Well, and then, then there's the other side of things, death. And, and death is the thing that everybody uh, is afraid of. It's a universal human experience because we have awareness and we have this fear of oblivion. Mm -hmm. and, and so then becomes this, well, how do you explain that? How do you explain th how things keep going on? And, you know, is there any hope for us and that sort of thing? And so we get all these different um, underworlds. And the Babylonian underworld is super cool and uh, it has some very interesting characters in it. Uh, so once again, the land of the dead. And the land of the dead is ruled by Eresh Kigal. She is the queen of darkness. Originally, she was a sky goddess uh, and she was carried off by force to the underworld by the dragon Kur, and she now shares the throne with Nurgle. Uh, and we'll get to him in a second. Um, now who's got all the names? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Queen of Darkness, this is the first one that we're starting to get this sense of like death equals darkness. Um, and... Uh, and it's interesting to me that the uh, the head of the underworld is is a queen uh, who was originally a sky goddess. That's sounding familiar, Osiris. Right? I, I was actually thinking of uh, freaking help me out, Greeks. Um, Hades. 
Hades? Persephone? And, yes, that's that's where my mind was going. Yeah, and so and then Kur is the great lord of the underworld beneath the earth, and he, indeed he is the underworld, and he is also understood as sickness and death, um, and he takes the form of this great dragon. Mm. Um, Nurgle is son of Enlil, and Enlil is Enki's brother. So we, were, oh, okay. we talked a little bit about that, but and again, I don't have the family tree. I can't really audibly describe it, but just go with me on this. So we heard a lot about Enki, it's, it's and like Enki a did a lot of things, and Enki had a son named Marduk. Well, Enki's brother, Marduk's uncle, is Enlil, and Enlil's son is Nurgle, and Nurgle was originally a sun god and a god of healing, but he... I don't have the myth on this, but there's a particular reason for why he does this. He forces his way into the you know underworld for reasons. For um, reasons. <laughs> using heat and lightning. There again, that sort of heat lightning thing. And she, he threatens to destroy Reshkigal. Um, she avoids destruction by agreeing to marry him. So Aww. that's romantic. Yeah. Lovely. As gods of the underworld, they are now dark gods of destruction, death, plague, and war. And yet they still retain their origins as sky gods that have fallen. And so they, there's, the, again, that ambivalence, that sort of sky god, but also god of the underworld. <laughs> wow, they sound really bad. Well, let's not be judgmental. These are sky yeah. gods here. Calm down. <laughs> Is that sort of like the thought of like the fallen angels who are now, I mean, I know that these are gods in this, as you know, sky gods that have fallen, but I think that you that, could draw a parallel as, as to say that, you know, these were gods that have fallen or that have been brought to the underworld, but I not think fallen in a sense of being kicked out of heaven, right? Fallen angels were thought to be evil as well. And, right. um, the, uh, you know, the gods who became the gods of the underworld were not necessarily evil, but they were probably more likely to be associated with evil just because death is real scary. Yeah. Um, okay. I do like, and I don't mean to keep cutting you off, Tom, but I, I do yeah. like pointing out that, like, consistently, the, the last ones in these, but these are especially, gods are freaking workers, like, you can't be a god without having a job, mm. a very specific task and job. Like you have to be in charge of this thing. And there's no gods that are just like, I'm I'm gonna chill. Like I like being gods and just being more like, Put nope, you freaking earned this. You have to <laughs> you have to do it. Like, but I was in the sky. You changed your mind. Now you're in charge of death. Good luck. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, trying to explain why things run in the world the way they do. And that especially stuff in the sky has to have immense power beyond human comprehension. Yeah. And then death and everything that goes beyond, like what happens? And, you know, your body goes down into the earth. Then what? You know, it, it just sparks that imagination. There is one exception, though. Anu. Remember I was talking about Anu? I was talking about Anu, yeah. The, the one who tried diplomacy with Tiamat. Yeah, he was also the sky god that was married to key the mother earth right um so different myth same character different hierarchy anyway anu 
was kind of a sky god, but he really wasn't ever worshipped as such. He really was just kind of the god of being divine. <laughs> he was He's just like, sort of thought of like I'm a. He was the lazy one, I think. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, that's he's gotten it. But he's only the only one that I know of. I'm the god of being worshipped. Yeah. <laughs> and... Oh man, I wanted that gig. Dang it. All right, so let's talk about Ereshkigal's sister. She has a sister, and her name is Ishtar. And in another civilization or another uh, religion or version, uh, her name is Inanu. Um, mm. But we're going to go with Ishtar, but she's very well known as Inanu as well. So Ishtar is a goddess of fertility. She is goddess of love. And uh, she decides to descend into the underworld. I don't know why. Uh, she... I guess maybe wanted to visit her sister or maybe she, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know why she descends, but she does. She goes down into the underworld and she fears that her sister will resent her and put her to death. So that's probably a valid fear. Could be that she thinks that uh, Ereshkigal would think that, you know, she wanted her chair or something. We don't really know, but her fears are justified because she is absolutely resisted by her sister. Her sister feels threatened by Ishtar. Why the hell are you down in my kingdom? So Ishtar must pass through seven gates of hell. And at each gate, she is met by a demon who strips her of one article of clothing. Strip gates of hell. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound so bad. A little yeah. racy. Let's see how this plays out. Yeah. <laughs> Quote, she is brought stark naked and on bended knee before Ereshkigal and the Anunnaki, the seven dreaded judges of the netherworld. They fasten upon her their eyes of death, and she is turned into a corpse, which is then hung from a stake. God. Jeez, dude. They give her the death stare. So while Ishtar is dead, the world above becomes sterile and barren. But with the help of Enki, she is revived. But there's a rule that no one can return to the land of the living unless they have a replacement. Oh. Mm. So, uh, and it, the replacement mm -hmm. has to be suitable, has to be a proper substitute. Gotta find so, someone. Yeah. So she goes back to the surface and goes back to her husband, Tammuz, who's in um, the place of Kalub. And finds that uh, he's not real mourning her death uh, while she's been away. He's been actually <laughs> uh -oh. kind of enjoying the high life on the throne in her absence. Oh, my God. So is... she's like, yeah, you Stop bastard. <laughs> Ishtar looks upon him with the eye of death and hands him over to the demons. Bye-bye. Who drag him to the underworld and is never seen from again. Jeez. Hell is the region of death. And then w while imprisoning the goddess of love and fertility, that can cause the world above to be blighted and sterile. But she comes back and that gets renewed. And there's, hmm. again, this cycle. But by very violent means in both ways, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, like you said, it's not order out of chaos. It's kind of order derived from the chaos that's being created again. The chaos is the cycle. Yeah. 
anyway, so that's that's sort of the the underworld of the Mesopotamian religion. Uh, let's talk a l- real quickly about the demonology of Mesopotamia because they had some real interesting demons. They're generally hostile spirits of lesser dignity and mm-hmm. power to the gods. They're basically evil spirits that are very powerful, but they're definitely not as powerful and they're definitely not as respected as gods, even the lowest gods. The terrible previously mentioned Anunnaki were the jailers and the judges of the dead in hell. The Itimu were ghosts of those who died unhappy. The Ituku lived in deserts or graveyards. And then there were some other demons. You know, they had demons of plagues, demons of nightmares, demons of headaches. I'm pretty sure I had one of those last night. Um, <laughs> demons Get out of, my head! Yeah. Demons of windstorms. It must be windy as fuck there. Yeah, man. I, How I'm many lots. gods are there of wind and storms and shit? Yeah. I mean, have you looked at where this thing is on the map? Like, yeah, that is windy as hell there. It's got to be with, with the way it's done between the seas and the dry lands across mm-hmm. and the aridness. Yeah, I imagine there's there's a ton of freaking storms. Well, all the the every time you see the the big sandstorms in all the big movies, and I'm sure if you saw one in real life, they are like humblingly terrifying. Yeah. Anyway, so demons of windstorms such as Pazazu or Pazuzu, the king of the demons of of the wind. And Pazuzu might be familiar to some of you. He is the demon that is referenced in The Exorcist. Oh, Um, wow. And it is thought that he is the demon that possesses Reagan, the child, in The Exorcist. I've read The Exorcist, and I've seen the movie, and they definitely make a little bit bigger deal out of that in the sequels to the movie. But I, you don't really get that directly. They talk about Pazuzu early on, like in Iraq, in the sort of archaeological dig site and stuff, and they reference him like one more time, and that's it. But it's there, and he is thought to be a very evil demon, very old demon, that's, Mesopotamian uh, demon. Good writing. Good catch. Very that. famous. He's in Hollywood now. Oh, he, <laughs> I made it. And of course, you know, demons of every human ill. Because if you're sick, there's, it's obviously got to be a demon. Right. Among the worst of the demons was Lilitu or Ardat Lili. And she is the ancestral prototype to the biblical Lilith in Isaiah 34. Uh, Lilitu was a frigid, barren, husbandless, quote, maid of desolation who roamed the night attacking men as a succubus and drinking their blood. To protect oneself against demons, one resorted to the use of amulets, incantations, exorcisms, and yeah, all that. You get the idea. We got demons, like proper demons. Full on. Yeah, in, in a couple of things now. And then, you know, you you have the Israelites who are then sort of thrust upon all of this and and have to absorb people, you know, observing these deities and whatnot. Clearly, that has to influence what your thought of evil is. Yeah, for sure. Sure. All right. Well, we're done with Mesopotamia. We're going to move on. We're moving on to Canaan. 
All right. Canaan is a term that broadly applies, or the Canaanites, um, that broadly applies to the Semitic-speaking civilizations around the coast of what is now Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. So it's on the coastal side of things. The high god was... the Mediterranean coastal side of things. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. The high god was El, and this was adopted by Yahweh, as in El Shaddai, or Elohim the god of the sky and sun, often portrayed as a bull. His son was Baal, or Baal, or Baal, or... You get the idea. It's, it's that guy! You know! Baal. 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 Uh, which means the Lord, and it was equated with Hadi, or Hadad, god of lightning and thunder, who became god of agriculture when the Amorites which were a roaming civilization settled in Canaan. Um, it's later determined pretty distinctly that uh, Baal and uh, Hadad are, um, are two very specific different characters, but mm. they, were, they were associated. There's other deities like um, Dagon, god of vegetation, especially grain. Reshef, god of the desert, war and plague. There we go again. Yeah. And then the three goddesses, whose functions were often indistinguishable from one another. So in a lot of stories, they're gonna, you're going to see them being substituted for each other quite a bit. Okay. And they all start with A. Cool. So there's Asherah. She was a sea goddess. Astarte, who's very, very famous. She, uh, this is the, he the Hebrews distorted uh, Astarte into Ashtoreth. Uh, or in some translations, Ashtaroth, to make it sound like a word meaning shame in Hebrew. Uh, she was the goddess of war, love, and fertility. And it, uh, Egyptians associated her with the horse and chariot, which were the deadliest war machines of the time. So yeah. She's often depicted mm. on horseback and things like that. Sure. So they knew who she was the egyptians knew exactly who she was and they they brought her on into their pantheon as well so we have a cool. god and goddess of war because because mm. war desert and what was it pestilence was was one of the other ones the guy before? yeah destruction destruction set. yeah yeah and then there's uh aneth 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 or anat um she is the sister wife of baal Sister wife. Uh, yeah. So, and at the center of this religion was a fertility cult. And the central figures were Baal, Anath, and their enemy, Mot. And Mot was the lord of destruction and sterility. So, uh, very much the exact opposite of Baal. Baal is the lord of life and fertility. Yeah. For centuries, the only knowledge we had of the Canaanites came from the Bible who viewed Baal as evil, or at the very least, a false god. Right. To the Canaanites, however, Baal was the savior god, the lord of life and fertility. His symbols were like his father's, El, the bull, and the crescent horns, and was generally known as the lord. I found some really interesting uh, sort of uh, language breakdown uh, of this. So in the Semitic languages, there's... Baal, where they have the apostrophe between the A's. Mm, and yeah. in, when you're using uh, in Baal or Baal, uh, that is to signify owner, lord, or even husband. Ah. Baalim 
was thought to be the pluralized form of Baal, suggesting either multiple deities of the same name or that Baal could take on different forms. There's just Baal, which was uh, Amorek, just B-A-L. There's Belu or Bel in uh, Akkadian. Baal, which is B-A-apostrophe-L in Arabic. This one's interesting. Can serve as names for various gods, Baal, or serve as the word that indicates ownership or the possessive. So... (laughs) Again, we talked about, like, we're getting this notion that Baal is the Lord. I own this. This is my realm. And as you can imagine, marriage probably wasn't as equality as we, you think of it today. We know that so, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, yeah. Not so at all. So it's, it's a, it could be a form of not just God name, but, but ownership. Yeah. And, and in actual lordship, as, mm-hmm. the way that we currently use it. That's right. How interesting. So wait um, a minute. Does that mean that in the Bible, in the biblical context of it, they were u- referencing it the same way? Yes. Thank you for that segue. Ha-ha! <laughs> <Slander>. <laughs> but before I get to that, I want to throw this one little last thing. Baal Allah is the Hebrew Aramaic that can mean the lady of the house or in the rare form, wife. So all I'm trying to point out is that Baal was used in a lot of different ways in these old languages. Um, but Baal can be used as a title and is equated with the Hebrew Adon, Lord, or Adonai, my Lord. And your observation is absolutely 100% correct that there, there is thought to be that Baal was equated with Yahweh. There's not a lot of direct evidence to suggest this. It's just anecdotal, observational, and it could be coincidence. But another thought, which this sounds a little bit more compelling to me, is that at some point that they were, but by the 9th century BCE, when Jezebel introduced Israel to her ball and encouraged them to neglect Yahweh, the Israelites began to resent the name Baal culminating in an outright denunciation of Baal as a false god or, uh, you know, equated the concept with shame. And so we get this separation. Mm -hmm. But it makes sense the way it's used and the way it's it's used in the Bible, you know, in the in the Hebrew Bible is is you know the the terms Lord and my Lord and Right. um, It's it's less about the the deity and more about like the fiefdom. Mm-hmm. And, and and the determination of ownership and and title. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. And it gets better. Baal is also where we eventually get Baal Zebub or Beelzebub. Baal Zebub meant Baal of the heavenly mansion, whereas Zebub is like a place or a mansion or a house. Oh, hmm. Lord of the high place. Beelzebub or Beelzebub was apparently the deity worshipped in the Philistine city of Ekron. In the Old Testament, Beelzebub is referred to as the Lord of Flies or the Lord of Dung. Yeah. So, in that context, <laughs> I see oh a light bulb God. in your face. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on in your brain? Mickey? So my my okay. So if here here's here's my my piece that just went ahead, Beelzebub. 
which I already knew as Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung. But if that means the Lord of the High Place, so God of the High Castle, and they look down on those people, then when the Israelites are referring to the Palestinians in, in their conflict, they're like, yeah, the yeah. Philistines. The Philistines, excuse me, right? The, the Philistines, they'll be like, yeah, those people, they they live on crap. They, they, are, they are crap people. Rather yeah. than an actual god of flies, because it's not a god anymore. It's it's the Lord. It's the he yeah. is the king of the pile of shit. Yeah, it's commentary. It's absolutely yeah. commentary. Straight up. It, it, I think it's it's commentary on the rival religion and the rival uh, political state, the captors, the oppressors. Um, absolutely, I think that's a hundred percent. Lord of the high place, cool. Lord of the high mansion. No, fuck no. that. He's the Lord of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Beezlebub. That's what that means. So you can imagine if your religion says there's only one God and all the other gods are false gods, then everyone else's God becomes evil regardless. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a lot of bull horns and cloven feet and yeah. fertility and... And every one of them is evil, therefore you combine them all. Mm-hmm. Have an embodiment of the bad god. Yeah. The Lord of Shit. The Lord of Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Lord of Flies. Lord of Dung. All right. So so let's get into the the Canaanite myth for Baal. Emily, I think you've got this one. I do. Okay. So Mat is ravaging the world, and Baal goes out to fight him. After a long battle, Mat defeats Baal, who bows and humiliates himself before the enemy, promising to be a slave. But Mat kills him, or swallows him, or sends him to the underworld. It's all the same thing. Okay. Um, <laughs> we Got don't it. know, but, but you, you get the him. idea, right? Got him off the map. Check. Yes. Gone. It reminds me of like uh, when you're roughing out, roughhousing as kids, and you know you clearly get beat. You're like, "Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I promise to be your slave." But in this case, it's like, "Yeah, fuck you, Heck die." No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Ball is gone from the earth for seven years, and during that time, the earth is barren. Crops wilt, they die, nothing's growing. But Ball's sister. Aneth, or Anat, or however we decided to pronounce that, um, is the terrible goddess of love and war, and she wanders the earth in search of her dead brother. So she finds his body and gives him a proper burial. But then out of revenge, she seeks out Mott and kills the fucking shit out of him. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't have any descriptions about that one? <laughs> yeah. Death, thou shalt die. And and here's a pretty kick-ass quote, um, and Don can fill in where it's from. Um, but, with sword doth she cleave him, with fan doth she winnow him, with fire doth she burn him, with handmill she grinds him in the field she doth sow him so death 
is dead. <laughs> and planted. Uh, yeah. So killing mott is an act of fertility uh, to make the grain grow. And the death of death revives Baal. Oh, that's and logical. With, right. And with Baal's return, the world blooms. It's wonderful again. Mott, however, also revives and the two gods fight again. And yeah, of so, they do. right. And this is the cycle of life in that region. Seven year cycles. Yeah. These, these mm. battles, you know, seven years and then crap. Now, if Baal won, the land and people are fertile and have plenty to eat. But if Mott wins, there's drought and famine. So equal power, equal chance of winning. And there's another myth about Anath, and she's confronted with a hostile army of men because. And she fights... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> reasons, who knows? She fights them violently and also slays the shit out of them. And there's another... Is this from a poem or a song? This is uh, This is from... Uh either a poem or a clay, you know, clay tablet or something. Okay. It's, it's translated. Yeah. Okay. So, and Lo Anath fights violently. She slays the sons of the two cities. She fights the people of the seashore, annihilates mankind of the sunrise. She plunges knee deep in the blood of heroes and neck high in the gore of troops. Oh, God. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As a, as a visual, I wasn't waiting. Killer, for, I wasn't right? expecting. <laughs> yeah. Man. So similar to the Sekhmet myth, she is representative of God's destructive power. Um, you know, where God plans the destruction of humanity, but stays his hand to spare a select few from the slaughter. Yeah. So that wow. is how that myth goes. What stark similarities there are. Um, I don't know if that's the right way to say that. Stark similarities. <laughs> They're very similar. What um, very clear. Yeah. Um, with Egypt, I really feel like, you know, there is that cycle again mm -hmm. where things sort of, there's a clash and then somebody dies and then things go to shit, but then he comes back and things are better and. Mm -hmm. um, the the very moment you mentioned seven years of, of famine, I, I was like, oh, that's Potiphar. And, and I immediately thought of Joseph's uh, dreams as well from mm. uh, the from Old Testament uh, of the, of, you know, you guys remember, right? He's a 17 year old kid and he's like, there will be seven years of feast and then there will be seven years of famine. famine. And, right. And, and it goes, it goes back and forth and, and everyone's like, how can this be? Anyway, that, it reminded me of that. I was, yeah. I was thinking like, that's a, that's a similar tale as well. I, I just think it's neat that that they're seeing things that are going on in their lives. They're noticing these seven-year cycles, um, and they create these stories to explain it, to explain yeah. it away. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Well, we didn't get any beer in this episode. Uh, no, with, we didn't. With the myths, but- I have uh, no doubt that you tried. I bet you tried your hardest. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's jizz and there's uh, a lot of blood and gore and bodies being torn asunder. <laughs> I'm trying not to like wrinkle my nose at that, but like that's true. There was a, there's a lot of that. Like, yeah. I mean, we we could beer. add beer to this. She plunges knee deep in the blood of heroes, neck high in the gore of troops, and slams a beer to to celebrate. <laughs>
<laughs> that made that myth a whole lot better to me. Yeah, there you go. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, okay. So let's summarize. Uh, I think number one, proximity makes the Mesopotamian and Canaanite influence on Judaism and early Christianity inevitable. Yeah. The world is chaotic and cruel, and their gods reflect this. And the gods do not seem to have much affinity for humanity. Um, also true. And it, and it establishes some influences for future creation myths. The sky god that falls and becomes associated with death, the underworld, disease, fertility, and thereby sex, love, symbols of the bull, crescent moon. Is this starting to ring any bells? A little bit, yeah. Sky, divine being falls from the sky, becomes associated with death, and the underworld, and disease. Yep, that adds up. Number three, if a new religion establishes in the area with a focus on only one god, all the other gods are false. Not only that, though, but the other gods are cruel, barely even care about humanity, it seems. So make your religion where the sky god actually likes humanity and doesn't like false gods. All the other gods are then evil, and then by extension become the demons in the new religion. And some of these false gods' names become associated with the ultimate evil one. Sure. Yep, totally see that. These civilizations continue to wrestle with the theodicy, the way to explain why things the way they are. Why does all this bad shit happen when I worship properly? Don't the gods even care? Is it all just chaos and, and all we can do is try our best to create some kind of order to get some peace? The sky gods, aren't they supposed to be good? Why do they allow us to suffer? These are still relevant. Um, yeah, sure. if, sure. if you're coming to that from that perspective that there are gods that create suffering yeah. or allow suffering for sure, because suffering still exists. Well, and just looking back at that seven year cycle of famine and and if the other god wins the battle, then we seven years of good times. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And remember that the people of this area, man, they suffered mutilations, slavery, yeah. pillaging, burning. Uh, bodies piled high, left to rot in the sun, imperialism, drought, blights, harsh desert winds, and scorching sands. But maybe there's another explanation. Maybe the sky god isn't responsible. Maybe the sky god isn't all-powerful, and that there is another being that's responsible for all this awfulness. Well, in the 6th century BCE, Zarathustra prophet out of Iran, establishes the idea of actual dualism. There is another. There is a second principle. There is one whose domain is evil and the suffering of the individual, the first prince of darkness, the first devil. Ahura Menu, or later known as Araman, and we will get all into his situation in the next episode. Sweet. So, so that's it. Now has a name. Mm -hmm. This sing singular being yeah. of evilness has a name. And yep. and what was that again? Araman. Araman. Yeah. Araman. Okay. Or if you want to go with the old name, Ahura Menu. Ahura Menu. Yeah. Cool. All cool, right. man. Well, hey, I'm I'm I'll be here next week. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I will too because I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll come along too. Yay! <laughs> well, this has been The Devil You Don't Know, and in our series, The Ancient Origins of the Devil. Head on over to our new website at thedevilpodcast.com and leave a comment or review. Let us know you're listening. You can also find all the links to our social media and all of our sources through our link tree. Definitely check that out. If you got a story or question or praise for the show, you can leave us a voicemail. 971-666-3351. I know, who uses phone numbers anymore? But you can. So uh, give us a call, leave your voicemail, and we will play it on the air. On the air. We'll play it on an episode. 971-666-3351. Remember to subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also remember on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a review there as well. That'd be great. Five stars, please. We'd love that. Thank you all so, so much for listening to us and tune in next time as we continue our series on the ancient origins of the devil. This will be Zoroastrianism or the first devil. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Bye, folks. Bye, all. Next, on The Devil You Don't Know. How did Zoroastrianism influence uh, post-exilic Judaism and early Christianity? And I'll remind everybody what post-exilic means uh, in a bit. So, last time on (laughs) the ancient origins. Last time (laughs) on The Devil Um, You Don't Know. That's right. I want to hear each of us do that. That was really good. Ellie, can we do that again? What? Say it again. Say the exact thing you just said the last time on. Uh, All right, I'll do it. Do it after me. <laughs> last time on The Devil You Don't Know. Last time on The Devil You Don't Know. I don't know how I said it the first time. Now, no, it was now, good. It was, now it was I'm trying to, to like, do it on command. And that doesn't work. <laughs> that doesn't do the radio voice. Oh, no. Be funny. I can't, I can't be funny when you say <laughs> be funny. Know what to say. It's not. <laughs> last time on I Don't Know. Last time on The Devil You Don't Know. And hit it, Don. Boom. Now you say it, Don. We didn't get yours. Last time on The Devil You Don't Know. Ah! See, that sounds way better. That was pretty NPR is what that was. I loved it. <laughs> NPR is definitely a big uh, inspiration of mine. You know? <laughs> I, uh, I I strive to, to meet that. I, I'm a long way there. It's going to be fine. Let's start with Egypt.